Hey, this is Randy Robinson, and I'm the pastor of Everyday Church. Thanks so much for joining us today. We hope this podcast encourages you, stretches your faith, and helps lead you into a growing relationship with Jesus. Let's do it. We have been in a series called Jesus Above All. And we've talked about a lot of things in this series, um, and the content has at times been challenging. Uh, I want to wrap up this series today with a, um, with a challenge to embrace being a follower as part of your identity. Uh, being a follower is more than what I do or don't do. It's who I am. Have you ever been to an event where they had you put on a name tag? You know, you walk in like, hey, you know, could you please put, put your name on the name tag? We do that at our newcomers parties. We ask everyone to name, uh, to wear a name tag. Have you ever walked in and they do something different? Like they want to play a game. They're like, hey, we're doing something a little different today with these tags. Everybody will probably tell you their name anyway. So if you don't mind, would you write something else about yourself on the tag? And I know that this kind of stuff is helpful to get to know people. But as an introvert, this kind of stuff kills me. <laughs> So I don't mind it so much if I'm the one facilitating it, like in an environment that I've created. But if I'm in an unfamiliar place and I'm like, hey, guys, we're going to play a game to get to know people. I'm immediately like, excuse me, can you tell me where the restroom is and how long is this game going to last? Because that's how long I need to use the restroom. It's just not, you know what I mean? I mean if you're an introvert, you know. Statistically speaking, most of us would write down our occupation. That's how we would often identify ourselves outside of our name. I'm a teacher. I'm an electrician. I'm a first responder. I'm a landscaper. Uh, some people would identify themselves by a significant relationship in their life. I'm a mom. I'm a dad. I'm a husband. I'm a wife. Some would identify with a challenge or a struggle that they face. I'm an alcoholic. I'm an addict. I'm divorced. I'm a cancer survivor. I'm a victim of abuse. And still others would identify by things that they're passionate about, maybe hobbies or just something they really love to do. I'm a golfer. I'm a runner. I'm a photographer. I'm a food enthusiast. I'm a decorator. Whatever word or words that we would write in that blank have the potential to have significant power over our lives because everything flows from what we would identify with as our core identity. And we're going to fly over some concepts that have been a recurring theme for the past few years. But we often have a tendency to focus heavily on behavior and not really talk much about identity. We spend a lot of time in church circles telling people how they should act. We often discuss what we should do and shouldn't do and how we should live and how we shouldn't live. And that's definitely a part of maturing in our faith, learning kind of the ins and outs of what God of how to live a godly life. But the reality is, is that our behavior is determined by our identity. And in the words of Kyle Eidelman, we've quoted him a lot through this series. When we understand who we are, we will know what to do. So there are countless self-help books and podcasts and gurus out there telling us what kinds of things that we should do to make our lives better. How to be better parents, how to better invest your money, how to be a better spouse. And I don't think there's anything wrong with any of that. But the problem is if our behavior change doesn't flow from our core identity, then it doesn't tend to last. Has anybody ever experienced that in your own life, trying to change things? In the science of cybernetics, there are two kinds of change, first order change and second order change. 
First order change is quicker, it's easier, it's often inc incremental. It could be a change to a current way that you're doing something, a tweak of a system to make it better. Losing weight, for example, eating less and exercising more might be an example of first order change. But how many of you know that's easier said than done? If proper diet and exercise isn't part of your core identity, then you already know how difficult it is to maintain a healthy lifestyle. Just this week, every week, but just this week, I said to myself, I've got to get my body healthy. And I've missed my monthly run the past two months. <laughs> I'm not currently eating my best. And so the day after I decided today's the day, every year, it just keeps going longer. Like this year, I think it was 12 years ago on Facebook. I was like, I'm going to start eating healthy one day. Just not today. <laughs> I, I felt like deleting it so I don't have to see it anymore. But every year it's a reminder. Like you just keep putting it off, dude. You could have been healthy by now. Um, but just this week, right? So the day after I decided to, this is it. I'm going to do better. I had to go to Ocala to pick up some equipment that we needed for the volunteer banquet. And some of you won't care about this. But when I drove by Long John Silver's, <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't resist. It was like my car went into autopilot and it just drove right up to the speaker. And the guy said, you know, can I take your order or whatever? And I said, you know, because I'm trying to be healthy. How many pieces of chicken are in a kid's meal? And he said, one. And I said, oh, give me a three-piece combo with extra crumbs and a Mountain Dew. <laughs> I knew that was going to make me sick before. I, I mean... I, Driving in, I was just going to make you so sick. Don't go there. And I was like, it just tastes so good. It doesn't even taste so good. I don't even, I'm just addicted. I don't know what my problem is. The, the problem is, is that I had it. There's no second order change that had happened in my life, which is the next level. So second order change is, is different than first order. Second order change is often described as transformational. It's revolutionary or radical or disruptive or discontinuous. It involves seeing the world in a different way, challenging assumptions and working from a new and different worldview. Second order change is doing something significantly or fundamentally, fundamentally different from what you have done before. And the process is usually irreversible, meaning that once you begin, it becomes impossible to return to the way you were doing things before. It requires a new way of seeing things, and it is a transformation to something that is completely different, a more desired state. It requires new learning and a shift in beliefs or a shift in your identity. And even though those definitions came from a secular source, they're profoundly biblical. Listen, Jesus didn't call us to behavioral modification. He's after an identity change. And when our core identity is changed, the correct behavior will follow. So what would you write on your, what word would you write? What word would you put on there if they said you can't put, can't put your name? all kinds of things that we could put on there right so for mine I would probably if I were honest write failure now one of the it's, it's okay everybody calm down <laughs> it's gonna end in a better place so it's <laughs> we're done with that illustration 
No, I'm just kidding. Okay. <laughs> One of the hindrances to embracing the identity of follower of Jesus is what or who people have previously told us that we are. Now, there are two pri primary factors at play here. One is early information, the early information factor. That's what, we're, what, uh, what we are told about ourselves early in our lives, and it tends to carry a lot of weight. And two is the often information factor. What we are told about ourselves on a regular basis can significantly shape our identity. We might not even believe it the first time we hear it. But the more it's said, the more the belief takes root in our lives. Now, here in our circle, internally at our church, you might hear myself or others refer to what we call ungodly beliefs or UGBs for short. And I know there are a lot of you that are going to be new to this concept. So let me briefly give you an explanation of this language as well as refresh the memory of those who have been around for a while. We often say that our starting place as Christ followers is a place of victory. Jesus already secured our victory by his sacrifice on the cross. But because we live in a fallen, sinful world, we all still experience hurt and loss and death and frustration and sickness, etc. All of these things are an attempt from the enemy, which is Satan and his demons, to distort our thinking and cause us to begin to believe ungodly things about ourselves, about others, and even about God. To cause us to question God's goodness. To cause us to question God's sovereignty. To question whether God even loves me or not. And when we begin to allow our thinking to align with our circumstances instead of what God's word says, it creates what we call ungodly beliefs. Now, here's the working definition. Ungodly beliefs are anything that you believe which is not in agreement with God's word, his nature, or his character. This includes beliefs, decisions, attitudes, agreements, judgments that we make on people, expectations, vows, and oaths that we make that do not agree with God's word, his nature, or his character. And quickly, give me, I'll give you some examples of an ungodly belief. I'm all alone. Or maybe even I'm a failure. Or nobody is there for me. Or my survival depends only on my abilities. I can't trust anybody else. Ungodly beliefs come from lies that we have believed. Now, lies, by definition, are contrary to God's word, his nature, and his character. The Old Testament book of Numbers says this. Numbers chapter 23, verse 19. God is not a man, so he does not lie. He's not human, so he does not change his mind. Has he ever spoken and failed to act? Has he ever promised and not carried it through? Now, let's contrast that with the words of Jesus regarding Satan, who is the very is the very real, the real enemy of our souls. John 8, 44, Jesus said, you belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth. He's talking about Satan. For there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Now, look, I've said this before, but this is and it's a strong statement. But when we embrace ungodly beliefs, we are aligning ourselves and our belief systems and our identities with Satan. Ungodly beliefs become an open door for the enemy to wreak havoc in our lives. Ungodly beliefs have the potential to destroy your destiny, your purpose, your marriage, your relationship with your kids, your job and employment opportunities. And maybe you're saying, come on, Randy, you're taking this too far. It's really not that important. Listen, 
It is that important. Our belief system and our core identity affect everything that we do. If we believe the lie that we're a failure, we will act like a failure. If we believe the lie that we are unlovable, we will push away the very people who actually want to love us. These ungodly beliefs or identities that we take on, they can come from all kinds of sources, but they most often come from hurtful experiences, from family and friends, and then, of course, from the culture that we live in. Now, in 2020, we did a four-week series on ungodly beliefs, uh, but for t- today, that's, I don't want to go any deeper than that. I just wanted to give us a working definition. We'll revisit this many, many times in the future because I think it's very important that we don't lose sight of this in our lives and keeping our identity in alignment with who Christ says we are. I recently heard a story of a fairly successful man in his 40s, and he had been struggling with feelings of failure, and he went and he talked to a pastor, and for a few minutes they were trying to figure out where these feelings of failure were coming from. And the pastor said to him, it doesn't really make a lot of sense to me because anyone who looked at your life would say that you are a great success. And without pausing or giving it any thought, he said, anyone except for my dad. And as it turned out, he had developed an ungodly belief and a false identity of being a failure because early and often, remember those two factors, early and often, his dad had conveyed to him a message that he was a disappointment, that he was never going to be good enough, that he was never going to be successful. And all those years later, that's who he sees in the mirror, a CEO who feels like a complete failure. Now, we can see the lie so clearly, it seems, sometimes in others, right? But we have major blind spots looking at our own identity. I mean, how many times have you seen someone with a PhD who feels stupid or a fitness competitor who always feels out of shape or an MVP who always has something else to prove or a model who hates what she sees when she looks in the mirror? Why? Because early and often someone said you are blank, fill in the blank. And so the question becomes, has what other people told you about you kept you from embracing who Jesus has called you to be, which is a follower, a Jesus follower? Again, when Jesus came, he wasn't focused on behavioral modification. He was focused on an entire an an entire new identity. For Peter and James and John, he scratched out the identity of being a fisherman and wrote fishers of men. For Matthew, he scratched out the identity of a hated, corrupt tax collector and wrote, Disciple. For Saul, the great persecutor of the early church, he scratched out murderer and he became the most influential apostle and missionary that the world has ever seen. What is keeping you from embracing your identity as a follower of Jesus? Have you ever met someone from out of state who asks you where you live? And rather than some, I know not everybody lives in Bellevue, but rather than say Bellevue, you, which nobody has ever heard of, or rather than say Oklahoma, which nobody can even pronounce, <laughs> you say, oh, I'm from a small town in Florida. Anybody ever said anything like that? One, thank you. Just two people in the room. The rest of you, I'm from Bellevue. I'm proud of it. <laughs> you can't say Oklahoma. You don't deserve to live here. Or maybe you said the Ocala area. I use that someone sometimes. Because everybody drives, you know, right straight through. So they've heard of Ocala. I've even said 60 miles north of Orlando as a. Usually I say south of Orlando because I get my north and south mixed up. They're like, what? 
you live near Sarasota? I'm like, no. <laughs> now listen, I love it here, and I'm not in any way embarrassed uh, to live in the big metropolis of Bellevue. I really do love our town. But there are people from all kinds of places with odd or funny names, and rather than tell you the name, um, they modify it. And sometimes it is out of embarrassment. And I'm sure that there are towns all over America with bad names. Uh, I'm originally from Kentucky, for those of you that don't know. Um, and there are some really strange names of towns in Kentucky. Let me give you just a few. Uh, Booger, Booger Branch, Kentucky. I don't know. <laughs> Anybody ever been there? Booger Branch. Paw uh, Paw, Kentucky. Paw Paw. Uh, Black Bottom, Kentucky. M Monkey's Eyebrow, Kentucky. Uh, possum Trot, Kentucky. I don't know if the possums run a lot or if they have diarrhea. I'm not sure, but uh, <laughs> too much. I'm sorry. Bear, barefoot, Kentucky, which you don't want to be barefoot if the possum just trotted. I can tell you that. <laughs> bug Tussle, Kentucky. Anybody ever heard of Bug Tussle? There's also Mud Lick, Deer Lick, Paint Lick, Sulfur Lick, Bee Lick, Wolf Lick, and a few other licks out there. And I told David and Brent, I, you know, growing up, I didn't really understand why there were so many towns and little places called Lick. But it turns out it's actually another word for creek, which makes more sense. Deer Creek, Paint Creek, Sulphur Creek, like that makes more sense to me. But I didn't know that until this week, actually. I think what often happens is, is we allow where we're from and what we've done, the mistakes we've made or the successes we've experienced, a.k.a. our past, to determine our identity. And just like the name of some of these small towns, there are things that are true about us, but it's not how we want to be known. I don't want to be known from being from Possum Trot or Bear Lick or Foot Lick or whatever. <laughs> it's not how I want to be identified. I don't want to be known as the guy from Mud Lick. But it can be difficult to get away from our past. And one of the reasons that many of us cannot embrace our identity as a follower of Jesus is because we have accepted ungodly beliefs as truth. We have embraced a false identity based on things that we've done instead of who Jesus says that we are. And just like that successful CEO, every time we look in the mirror, we see an incompetent failure. We see the mistakes we've made or the sins that we've committed. Our failure then becomes the thing that identifies us. It becomes the identity that we embrace. And here's the issue. When our identity is wrapped up in who we were, we start to live out of that identity because the identity determines our behavior. And if we believe that who we are is who we once were, then we will continue living as we once did. Instead of moving forward as a follower of Jesus, we find ourselves held captive by our past. But one of the themes throughout the New Testament is that that's not who we are anymore. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 26, Paul writes this, Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential not many were of noble birth, but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. 
And God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. In another letter that he wrote to the believers in Ephesus, Paul said this in Ephesians chapter two. As for you. You were dead in your transgressions and sins. You were. That's who you used to be. In which you used to live. When you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work and those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who was rich in mercy, thank the Lord, gave us, uh, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace that you have been saved. Paul is saying, that's who you were, but that's not who you are anymore. Your failures are not your identity. Your mistakes are not your identity. Your sin is not your identity. Your habits are not your identity. If you are a follower of Jesus, that is your new identity. And when we stop living out of the past and begin to believe and embrace our new identity, our behavior will also begin to change. I don't have to wear this failure tag. I don't have to wear this failure tag any longer, but now I can just write follower. Amen. There are also people in the room who can't embrace their new identity as follower because they are tied up not in their failure but in their successes. I mean, how many of us want to be identified by something that we've done or accomplished? Most of us grew up thinking that our identity was connected to our achievements, right? The grades that you earned in school, the points you scored in the game, the trophies that we won, the diplomas that we received, the jobs that we get, the promotions that we get. As long as I'm achieving, then my sense of identity is solid. Listen once again to the words of the Apostle Paul from his letter to the church in Philippi. Philippians chapter 3. Beginning in verse 7, but whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. Garbage. I am a follower of Jesus. No mistake that I've ever made or anything that I've ever achieved says as much about me as that. And when we embrace that identity and understand that a follower of Jesus is who we are, then following is what we will do. There are a lot of things that we could write on our name tags. Many of them are true things. But as Pastor David Lomas wrote in his book, The Truest Thing About You, he said, quote, the truest thing about you is who you are in Christ. The truest thing about you is not that you graduated with honors or got promoted. The truest thing about you is not the trophies in your case. 
The truest thing about you is not the condition of your home or the success of your kids. The truest thing about you is not that you've been divorced. The truest thing is about, about you is not that you cheated or were cheated on. The truest thing about you is not that you, that you were knocked out or got kicked out or slept around. The truest thing about you is not that you were addicted or evicted or even convicted. The truest thing about you is not that you had an abortion. Those things may be true of you, but they're not the truest thing about you. That might be who you were, but that's not who you are because you have a new identity in Christ. You are not the names that you were called in middle or high school. You are not what your friends said behind you behind your back. You are not what the coach said about you or yelled at you. You are not how your boyfriend or your husband or your wife treated you. You are adopted, Ephesians 2:19. You are chosen, Colossians 3:12. You are called, Ephesians 4:1. You are a follower of Jesus, Luke 9:23. God is offering us an opportunity to receive deep healing from the wounds of our past, but we have to be willing to release our regret and all that we hold on to. We have to be willing to leave behind the mentality that says, I still have to pay a penalty for all of the wrong things that I've done. It's time to allow yourself to truly receive the grace of God. It's time to release your shame and your regret and give it to the Lord. I know we talked about this before, but it's such an important point. We talked about it last year in the, in the middle of the grace series. But I want to clarify quickly the difference between shame and regret. Because regret is when we feel bad about something we've done or haven't done. But shame is feeling bad about who you are or how you think you're perceived by others or God. So regret says, I made a mistake. But shame says, I am a mistake. Regret says, I failed. Shame says I am a failure. Regret is connected to behavior, but shame is connected to identity. Again, I'm going to close with a story. You know, it's, we are constantly getting new stories from our boys, but sometimes the old ones are, are good. Most of you know that we have uh, five and six-year-old sons. And let me just say that they're boys, not angels, and sometimes they require discipline. And one of the things that we do, and we didn't do this in the beginning, but we changed at some point, I think when Bennett was about one and a half, two years old, I don't, I don't know where, that, where this transition happened, but early, I don't know if it was before Emmett was born or not. Um, but one of the things that we do is we avoid, as parents, calling them bad when they make a mistake. When they've done something wrong, we ask them this question, was that a good choice or a bad choice? And when they go stay with grandma, we don't say, hey, be a good boy. We say, make good choices, make good decisions. And so from the time that they could barely talk after a moment of discipline, I would have them and I still do have them repeat this confession. I either will get down with them face to face or I'll bring them up, sit them on my lap and I make them say this. Daddy loves me. Mommy loves me. Jesus loves me. I'm a good boy. And then I make them say, I love daddy. I love mommy. I love Jesus. I'm a good boy. And listen, I know theologically we're not good, right? We all are all sinners and we all need a savior. But until they're old enough to understand that concept, I'm going, I'm not going to let them be defined by their mistakes. And I won't allow the enemy to whisper to them through the voice of their dad saying, you're a bad kid. 
I won't allow them to feel unloved when they make a mistake because my love for them is not based on their performance and their status as sons in my home is not defined by their behavior. In the same way, God's love for you is not based on your performance and your status as a son or a daughter is not defined by your behavior. A lot of us spend time running away from God because it feels like he's chasing us to collect a debt that we owe and we can never pay. But the reality is he's chasing us to give something that we can never afford. Stop dismissing the invitation of Jesus to become a follower simply because you think you're not worthy to receive it. Some are carrying regret. Some of you are carrying shame. And your identity is so connected to your mistakes that you believe that that's who you are, but you don't have to be that or believe that any longer. You can become, you can embrace being a follower of Jesus today. And maybe that seems like real repetitive for some of you. You're like, bro, I know you told us this 20 times this last year. I don't know about you, but there are times when I just need to be reminded of who I am. There are days that I wake up and and that's just what I feel like. I feel like it's a complete failure. And I need to be reminded that that's not, this is not my identity anymore. The sins and the things and the habits and all of the things that used to identify my life are gone. Because I'm a follower of Jesus now. And we spent a lot of time on the front end of this series, in a lot of ways, talking about not do's and don'ts, but so much our life, like complete sacrifice and surrender to Jesus, and we have to do that. But it's like we live in this tension of how do I abandon everything and still follow Him? And it's like, you know, you read the stories and all the things, and you're trying to, fit, you're, you're trying to connect the dots. And I think that this is the missing link between the two. It's embracing a new identity as a follower of Jesus. Because when I accept my identity as a follower, then I act like a follower because that's who I am. When Katie and I got married, I didn't, we're not pretending to be husband and wife. Like, I, that's my identity now. I'm her husband, and therefore I don't do things that maybe I used to or would have done before. My identity as a husband changes my behavior. Otherwise, I won't be a husband very much longer. (laughs) Or maybe alive, I don't know. (laughs) But embracing the identity changes the behavior. And I know, again, there's tension. Christianity is just constantly balancing tensions, right? Like we accept God, we're saved by faith. And then James says, unless you don't, unless you do work, there's no faith. And you're like, well, where's the, you're, you're we're constantly in like tension, right? You're balancing these things. And I get that sometimes we say these things that just roll off as some simplistic thing. But it's more complicated than that to walk it out. I get it. But I want to encourage you today. At the end of this series of Jesus above all, I want to encourage you to Embrace Jesus. Embrace your identity as a follower of Jesus. And then, then act, your actions will correspond. But it has to be second order change and not first order change. 
you know, it's not enough for me to say, I'm identifying as a healthy person today. When we leave, we'll probably go to KFC. You know, it's just like, it's, that's not true. I'm, you know, I haven't been going to KFC that much, but. But embracing our identity changes our behavior. And then you ask those questions. Is this what a Christ follower would do? If it's not what a Christ follower would do, then don't do it. Look, and I get it. Again, and, you know, sometimes I feel like I spend a lot of time going, I get it, I get it, I get it. I never want to come across as like somebody who's got, got it all together. It's not a struggle. This is what you do. It's easy. One, two, three. Okay, whatever. <laughs> that's just, that's not reality. But it can be done. And when we embrace Christ as our identity, our behavior can change. Let's pray, Father, I think. On behalf of Pastor Randy and the entire staff at Everyday Church, we'd like to thank you for joining us today. For more information on the church, please visit us at everydaychurch.xyz.